Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. So this eight or nine days, we've been practicing natural meditation, Dzogchen meditation, trek chud in Tibetan, seeing through, being through, or literally cutting through, cutting through solidity, cutting through duality, cutting through self and other, cutting through mind and concepts, seeing through, just being through. Recognize the great shunyata, the great transparency, subjectivity, or if you must, emptiness of things, the hollowness of things, vivid and apparent yet lacking in permanent separate essence. Practicing this sky-gazing practice of natural awareness, presencing, nowness awareness, Tatai Shepas Rikpasoma Jempa, as Dujimpache said, now this awareness is the unfabricated, raw, true Buddha within. Just sitting, just breathing, just being aware, three pillars of natural mindfulness and so forth. So, according to the scheme, the Vajrayana, high Vajrayana tantric scheme of view, meditation, and action. How Mahamudra and Dzogchen are always explained. Not climbing up through shila, moral, moral discipline and ethical practices to samadhi and mindfulness concentration to get wisdom later, but swooping down from above with the view of things as they are. Swooping while climbing through relative practices according to our inclinations and aspirations. Swooping down with the bigger picture, the view as it is, the great subjectivity, the great shunyata, the luminous voidness of everything, like rainbow, vivid, transparent, vividly present, and yet insubstantial, ungraspable, like echoes, and so forth, all the images of illusion in the Prajnaparamita, wisdom, scripture, Buddhism, like dreams, echoes, mirages, rainbows, fantasies, and so forth, like sitcom, like movie. View, we've talked mainly this week about the view and the meditation. The view, like the sky, infinite, open, luminous, radiant, empty, yet cognizant, lucid, lucid, scentless openness. What words can encompass the great Dharmakaya, God's mind, cosmic consciousness? What word can we use to F the ineffable? to express the inexpressible, total awareness. Awareness with a capital A, not just thinking, conceptual mind, but awareness itself, naked awareness, non-dual awareness, non-conceptual awareness, or pure presence, as Norbu Rinpoche translates Rikpa, 
pure presence with a capital P. Thus, I like it's called the practice of presencing, awareing, awareness as a verb, not aware of things, awareness, aware of awareness. Awareness is the subject and the object and the interaction, a non-dual or uncompartmentalized wholeness, completeness, and totality, present awareness. Dharmakaya mindfulness, as Neosho Kempo used to call it. So we've talked a lot about the view as it is, seeing things as they are, the first step on the Eightfold Path, the wisdom step, clear vision, wise view, seeing things as they are. In Sanskrit, darshan, divine vision. And from that comes the meditation of getting used to it, seeing it as it is, and leaving it as it is, second. First, the glimpse, or the intuition, the introduction, the recognition first, and then the practice, maturing it, leaving it as it is, getting used to leaving it as maturation, maturing this view, or this ability to be beyond action and beyond inaction also. Just flow, natural flow, the great Tao. Wu Wei in Chinese, Jadral, Chempo in Tibetan, beyond action and inaction, beyond action and beyond inaction, the sublime Dharma is accomplished, self-accomplishing, as it were. Pre-enlightenment, before you even have the enlightenment experience, the Buddha nature is whole, complete, uncorruptible, unborn and undying, as they call it, unborn and undying Dharma nature, Dharmakaya. So from that view comes the meditation of non-meditation here, not stressing closing the eyes or crossing the legs or looking inward for anything or looking outward for anything. Sky gazing is not searching or looking. It's just gazing like from a hilltop over the ocean at the horizon, not looking for your ship and waiting for it to come in, not, not counting the waves or studying the clouds in this practice, not just gazing and enjoying the view. Like when you're on the highway and it says, you know, beautiful viewpoint overlooking the Hudson at the Palisades Cliffs. You pull over and you enjoy the view. You don't go over there looking for something to take away with you except to relax and enjoy what's already there. Enjoy the view. Nothing else to do. Appreciate the view. Sambhogakaya means appreciate, enjoy, delight in the empty forms of Dharmakaya and Nirmanakaya, if you want to talk dirty. I mean technical. So from the view comes the meditation. And now today as we prepare to re-enter what they call ordinary life, meaning leaving tomorrow, completing retreat, you know, re-entering our habitual, let's call it householder or family life, our, 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 our usual business and, and life, comes the action, the conduct of the natural great perfection. The view of the consummate great completeness, the meditation of non-meditation, and the action or conduct, spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity in accord with circumstances and conditions as needed, not just, excuse me, karmic reactivity according to our own needs and wants and conditioning, compulsive activity, but spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity, liberating, beneficial, appropriate. Like the ocean's waves, if there's winds, if there's waves, no winds, the ocean doesn't need to wave. No problem. It's not bored. It's not ruined by having waves or icebergs. It's not improved. It's just ocean activity and its adornments. Everything arising as adornments, embellishments, expressions of the whole, not parting from the wholeness. You with me? 
We don't need to iron out the ocean's waves to make it a better looking ocean. Nice ocean, peaceful ocean. The ocean has no such concepts. That's why we say the master, the Buddha, whatever, never leaves the Dharmakaya, even when reborn, Tulku, as Nirmanakaya. Even when entering into action, dreamlike action, play, being a child of illusion, playing with the illusion like a magician plays with their magical apparitions and illusions, but not being deceived by illusion, not falling in love with their Pygmalion doll and being disappointed and not get in unrequited love back from the doll. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Anybody feel that way? <laughs> you create this thing and then you fall in love with it. I mean, it might even be another person that you're projecting on. Somehow then you're disappointed. You don't get back what you've built it up to be for. So the conduct, the activity of the bodhisattvas the awakeners, the Buddhas to be, bodhisattvas, the awakening beings, bodhisattvas. Trungpa Rinpoche called it spiritual warriors, but that's a little martial for me. The sacred awakeners, the peaceful warriors, the bodhisattvas, the spiritual activists, the compassionate altruists, the bodhisattva, the Buddha to be, who puts others first, but doesn't leave oneself too far behind, because we're all interrelated, there's no separation. The bodhisattva activity, for example, of the six or ten paramitas as taught in the Mahayana scriptures. Naturally coming forth, not legislated. Natural morality. When there's no selfishness, who would you exploit or harm? And so forth. Who would you withhold from? I'm just going through the paramitas. Generosity, ethical discipline, effort, and so forth on their outer, inner, and secret levels. Outer behavior, physical, and world, inner attitude, intention, attitude, emotional, and secret or innermost consciousness-wise. Being in the oneness, who would you treat as them, as merely them or other? You would naturally treat others even better than you usually treat yourself. So the bodhisattva conduct, view meditation, the natural spontaneous proactivity or good deeds, if you want to put it in simple English, as needed, responsiveness in technical terms, such as compassion, loving kindness, altruism, generosity, sharing, protection, and so on, guard, stewardship, etc. Resilience, centeredness, fortitude, forbearance, patience, all the bodhisattva virtues and more, all the cardinal virtues and more. In Rigpa, all perfect, no problem. But in the dualistic world of karma, there's virtue and vice, helpful and harmful, of course. And we need to make decisions and discriminate and sharpen our discrimination. Develop understanding and insight and wisdom judgment, discernment, not the lower forms of selfish judgment, being a judgmental bastard, but being able to make objective, clear, good decisions through refining our understanding and being less self-involved, more objective, what's needed and wanted, not just what we think we need and want, so illusory anyway. So view meditation in action, integrating Dharma in daily life, that's the subject today how we take this home. 
on various levels and dimensions of it. The practice we've been doing here in this monastic style, silent, vegetarian, peaceful, cloistered, intensive, non-meditation retreat. So, of course, daily life is where the rubber really meets the road on the spiritual path, not here in this greenhouse where the orchids can flourish in these very special, precious conditions, the precious orchids, but being more like the grass and the clover and even the weeds and the wildflowers, just where we can flourish and grow almost anywhere cultivating and developing these qualities so we can flourish and grow anywhere and live mindfully rather than have a car accident on the way home, to put it grossly. We'll leave and forget our glasses, our driver's license, our money, and I don't know what else, our mind here. Mindful living, conscious living rather than unconscious. I mean, who needs to discuss the virtues of consciousness and the, and the downsides of unconsciousness? We all know falling asleep at the wheel is like an exaggerated caricature of other things that we do due to lack of consciousness, due to mindlessness. So of course it's good to be mindful, be aware, remember what we're doing while we're doing it and not get this so distracted that we forget what we're doing while we're doing it and have an accident or cut off our finger while we're doing our carpentry or slam, you know, hurt our hand in the door or whatever. Of course, accidents happen, but you know what I'm talking about. Not just one disaster after another. There's a middle way here to be found. Not perfectionist, but not total disaster prone either. So, Bringing these practices into daily life has so many virtues and so much import on ourselves and our family and our workplace and our community and our world and our environment. The whole, all the interlocking concentric circles or levels of life, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, psychic, collective, universal, global, any way you look at it in our increasingly interconnected, interdependent world. So first, having some kind of daily practice at home, like perhaps every morning, morning and night meditating, praying, doing yoga, whatever your practice is, chanting, tai chi, you know, whatever it is. And second, some kind of regular um, weekly or monthly practice, perhaps with others, you know, like church going, like Monday night sitting group, like, you know, whatever you do to recharge the battery. It's hard to do it alone. So some kind of getting together a group practice. If you're not a joiner, just maybe having one pen pal or what should we call it? Practice pal. It doesn't even have to be a person. It could be your dog or cat. Cats are good at sitting in your lap. <laughs> if you hate people, you know, maybe you're a cat lover. A anyone will do. Even if you don't like beings, you can just practice with God or with, you know, some archetype. Jesus, Mother Mary, you know, Tara, whoever you like. Have a sitting group with the other deities and vis invisible archetypal beings. So daily practice and then 
weekly or monthly get practice, get together, and then every once in a while, like every year or so, maybe, or every season, try to come to a retreat or go to a workshop or do something to recharge your battery, learn more and go deeper. And then fourth, every five or ten years, taking some kind of break, whether it's a spiritual vacation, pilgrimage, or a sabbatical, or something different to turn over the garden and refresh the nutrients and nitrogen in the earth so things can grow again. Very helpful. Even the Dalai Lama, who, as you probably know, is quite busy and has a lot of responsibilities from the time he was a child in Tibet until they escaped India to until now, visiting 50 or 70 countries a year on his mission of peace and compassion even the, and human rights. Even the Dalai Lama did a three-year retreat when he was 13 to 16. So even he took a three-year sabbatical to develop himself in this life, develop his potential. A reincarnate Lama has a lot of potential, but it still has to be developed. They still have to grow their body and their mind, even though their spirit may be intact, pure, evolved, whatever you call it. So bring it home. And then having your morning practice, let's say your daily practice, it could be at night if you're more of a night person. Maybe it's during lunch hour, like some people tell me. Once I was invited to um, talk to and lead a sitting group at noon in the boardroom at Bloomingdale's. Yes, even in Bloomingdale's, the capital of materialism. Such a wonderful shopping pilgrimage place. <laughs> sacred place, generation after generation, many of us have worshipped there. <laughs> Even in, in Bloomingdale's at lunch hour, there is or was a meditation group. You know, we were sitting around a board table, a few people got up from their chair and sat on the floor. One woman in a dress with high heels took off her high heels, stood on her head in the corner and meditated that way for half an hour. Why not? That's a yoga posture. I guess you can meditate that way if you want to show off your bottom half to the rest of your, your colleagues. <laughs> no, she had it together. She had tights on, dark tights. She figured she knew that day was coming that Wednesday, every Wednesday. Even in the Pentagon, there used to be a, you know, like there were, H, what do you call it, triple A meetings? No, AA meetings. And, at lunch, there was actually a meditation group in the Pentagon at lunch. I won't mention names to protect the guilty. It's not, in West Point, there was a meditation, mindfulness meditation course there for a whole semester. But um, it was discontinued because uh, uh, this is not just some kind of scuttlebutt, as the teacher told me, you know, the outside teacher who was teaching it told me, um, who had been in the service uh, some decades ago. The cadets had reported that they felt less aggressive and less competitive from meditating. And they told that in a good way, but it was interpreted as maybe not so conducive to the general thrust of training at the military academy. Of course, these days, um, spiritual teachers have come up with new qualities they can uh, promote, I think would be the right word, like resilience that the military is incredibly interested in. So they have mindfulness training in the military for first for the caregivers, like the medics and the clerics, the chaplains, and then second for leaders, and then third in general, because it develops qualities like resilience and inner strength and fortitude 
and selflessness, unselfishness, and so on. So this is very interesting, I think, as we see the applicability of these spiritual tools that help us evolve our consciousness and our behavior too. Like relational mindfulness, for example, co-meditation, as I call it, meditating together. Co-meditation, which is the subject of my new book project. And when I say co-meditation, I know everybody thinks of meditating with other people, but I'm taking it to another level also, not just with other people, but like with your pets, meditating with Mother Nature in different ways, with the water, with the fire, with the five elements, meditating with God, Jesus, Buddha, whoever your archetype is, etc. In other words, taking the focus off oneself and self-growth and being with, communing with, co-meditation, with. It's very curious to me. People say, I don't get it. What's co-meditation? I said, do you know what co-create means? Create with? I mean, is this foreign language I'm speaking? So as we go out of here, of course, we've been cultivating noble silence and noble solitude, being alone together in our practice. But we have the opportunity now to, um, if I say share it with the world, I don't mean missionary eyes. How about share the world with ourselves? Re-enter the world in a different way, more uh, porous, less barricaded, barriered, armored. Letting people in and letting the, inner, the little boot inside out who wants to stand up and dance, the inner child, play. And then we could talk about also integrating daily life, you know, like um, altruism, compassion in action, seva, service. This is all very important. It's all included in the paramitas, the transcendental virtues of the bodhisattva. Seva, serving God by serving others. Serving the highest by serving the lowest and most needy and so forth. If we talk about it from the point of view of sort of um, creating a spiritual life from scratch, which might be relevant to some of you, although we're all doing these things already, even you youngest people I see here, Dylan and Maya, that, you know, you teenagers, you're already meditating and thinking about these things, and I don't know, this is pure scuttlebutt, but I heard, of course, it's very silent here, Dylan, but somehow I heard that you have 18 people coming to your meditation group at your high school. I don't know, is that even true? Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. So, you know, even the least and worst and most pathetic among us are like leading the charge, helping lead the charge. I mean, it's awesome. Even, you know, from the mouth of babes, as Buddha said. Maybe it was Jesus. Who knows? You've seen one, you've seen them all. So, I've developed this schema for the six building blocks of a spiritual life first daily-ish spiritual practice of some form, second study or theory to support your practice so you know what you're doing, getting some guidance or study. If you're not a book person, study relationships, study yourself, introspect, study, open the book of nature. I didn't say Dharma study, but that's okay. Third, personal inner growth work doing some form of inner growth work, not just sitting in the pew and dozing, but actually being actively engaged in the work, in the prayers, in the chants, in the meditation, in self-inquiry. 
having a curious questioning attitude. Some form of inner growth work, therapy, men and women supports groups, journal writing, creative work, whatever your inner growth work might be, gardening. So these first three, this first triad is more alone-ish, although you can do that with others, this is more alone-ish. And the second triad is more with others-ish. Fourth, group work. It's very difficult to do this alone. So benefiting by community, group, work, elders, kindred spirits, perhaps others who are a little further on the way, or just the, the group, the Sangha community. Fifth, teacher practice, working with elders and those who are a little further along the path. And sixth, seva, we already discussed this. Sixth, last but least, service, compassion and action, social and spiritual activism, volunteerism and so forth, charity, philanthropy, whatever you want to call it, even just being a good parent, being an informed citizen who votes rather than a dropout complainer about politics who doesn't vote, being an informed citizen who, who participates, being a good parent, this is all part of six, and really all of these. Certainly four, Sangha, the family is the Sangha for some people, very helpful, very, the home is the temple. Let's not be too square about these things. So these are six building blocks of a personal spiritual life. You'll notice there's nothing here that's Buddhist, except the word Dharma stuck in there. This is the kind of an American Nundra, or foundation for spiritual life. You don't have to be a Buddhist or even a religionist to do this. You could be a humanist, humanitarian. You could be of another religion and be benefit from these. And also, don't be overwhelmed by the six. If you do any one or two, it will definitely change your life. Each one is enough, as it were. Integrating into daily spirituality, into daily life is the challenge, although spirit is everywhere and, and you know, life is spiritual, as Tehar Deshodan, the great Catholic thinker and anthropologist of the last century, said, we're not ju just animals or ordinary, you know, animalistic human beings trying to become spiritual. We're actually spirits trying to learn how to live in a human form. There's a beautiful uh, little uh, sleight of hand there. Spirits trying to live in a human form. So that was very interesting, I think. So the spirit is not that far, but whatever you call it, God or Dharma or the path or the way or the Tao, the goddess, reality, we may feel sometimes feel far from it, but it's never far from you, I assure you. It's never feel far from us. So spiritual life is the way. And daily life is it. There's no other part of it, even here. This is not some other life. We're not in another world. When I was in the three-year retreat for eight and a half years, I realized you know, that the wall is only eight feet tall. The sky is infinite. We're just another bunch of people, household, living together, eating, shitting, sleeping, and trying to do what we think we should do every day. Just like everybody else in the world. Not any better, not any different from a certain point of view. Just another bunch of people trying to get through. Of course, we were intentional and intense and all that, but still, everybody is. You know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, so-and-so, is." it's usually about somebody else or somebody else's new date, you know, so-and-so is so superficial. What do you know? 
Everybody's equally deep, I'm sure. From a certain point of view, maybe from another point of view, not necessarily, you know, I mean, it depends on what aspect you're, you're weighing and evaluating. Is deep just this way and not this way? See what I'm saying? John Kabat-Zinn's not deep because he has such a wide popular reach. He doesn't have one great enlightened disciple. Like some other master, it only has one or none disciple. They're so deep, nobody can relate to them. So it depends on how you're looking at it. And we're all, you know, we all have so many sheaths of being. That's why I like the Tibetan Buddhist analysis of things as outer, inner, and secret, or innermost, subtle. Outer is visible, is behavioral, is material. We can apply it to so many things. Like there's the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. The, often stuck with the letter of the law, as they call it in the Bible. But what about the spirit of the law, the, in, the, in between the lines? The purpose. The purpose of a law like you should not work on the Sabbath. Jesus broke that because the spirit of the law is was if somebody needs help out of a, a manhole, you can do it on Saturday. Of course, the, the literalists did not like that. I don't have to tell you, you're all familiar with the Pharisees and the Jesus stories. So the outer, the visible, the behavior, but the inner, the attitude, the motivation, the intention, the state of consciousness, and then secretly the nature of things, where it all, all the spokes of this wheel comes together. Like not just not lying and stealing the outer, ethics, or moral self-discipline, or character, Sheila. But inner, being honest with yourself, being true to yourself. Not just behavior, but consciousness. Being pure of heart, or pure of intention, and secretly, innermostly, being in touch with the innate purity, or um, uncorruptible, Luminous nature, what should we call it? Clear light, Dalai Lama likes to call it, because it's hard to uh, formulate or codify that into something. The innate purity, the inner child, the little Buddha in, inside everyone and everything, the light even in the shadows. Shadows, nothing but light, that's what we're talking about. At the innermost level of purity, not just legislating whether you lie or steal. Even lying is just an expedient means of, of vir cultivating virtue, not lying. There may be times to lie, where truth trumps lying. Just like the intent of resting on the Sabbath trumps the law of the fixed calendar. Maybe there's a time to lie. Although Sam Harris has written a whole book against that idea. The great, great little um, atheist friend of ours. Called lying, if you're interested. But if somebody asks you if you have a 16-year-old hiding in the attic, you know, if the Nazis come to you, do a compassion and saving their Jewish lives in the attic might trump lie, the, the, the uh, precept of lying. You with me? But in the ethical realm, it's very important not to be honest with oneself and not to give in to easy rationalizations. That's a danger. So... Outerly, behavior, innerly, consciousness, and secretly penetrating or being in touch with the ultimate one way or another, whatever you call it, innermostly at the subtle level. Integrating that, 
is how we integrate it into daily life. Then it doesn't really, there's no split between the sacred and the mundane. Between meditation and post-meditation, as my lamas call it. That's how they um, divide life. There's meditation and then there's post-meditation. In other words, the rest of life. As if you meditate half the day, half the week, and then the rest, then there's the other stuff. But the point is, in meditation, you emphasize certain things. Like here, we emphasize non-doing and non-reactivity and non-judging, yes? And in life, you very well may have to judge or de decide which exit to get off to get where you're going and make other judgments, evaluations, and decisions and take certain actions and so forth. So in, in meditation, emphasizing the empty or open or transparent or equality of all things, the one taste. And in post-meditation, being very discriminating and discerning and seeking to understand more about the workings of causation, of karma and conditioning, cause and effect. So we call that being the, the master of illusion or playing with illusion. In meditation, emphasizing shunyata, seeing through, I hate translating that word as emptiness, as most people do. The great subjectivity, leaving it as it is. And in post-meditation, proactive, discerning, a wise, unselfish activity, according to karma, cause and effect, helpful and harmful, wholesome and unwholesome, etc. So these days... Although people say time is speeded up, or they have less time, or they're distracted, but it's more distracting, or these, you know, uh, electronic things are keeping them always on the grid, or speedy, or distracted, or interrupted, or overwhelmed. I'm not sure that it's any worse than before. I don't know. But whether it is worse or better, we still, here we are. It's incumbent upon us to live our life authentically and keep it real and be better people and contribute to a better world in the relative sense, which is so important in the world that we live in. So I think that this practice helps on the practical level, us be better people, kinder, less selfish, more patient, and so on, as we cultivate all these virtues in the view of meditation, especially now we're talking about the action or conduct of the great perfection of the bodhisattva way. People sometimes ask, why do you have all these things now in the action while in the view and meditation were so simple? Well, that's the yin and yang of things, the one and the many, the unity and diversity and so forth. We're not talking about doing nothing. When it's time to act, we act. We go to work, we raise children, we argue with our whoever's and ourselves or our inner conflicts, and that's natural enough. And we strive to do it better or more harmoniously or accept our, it, or accept ourselves and whatever. So when the pioneering Zen master Suzuki Roshi of San Francisco Zen Center who came from Japan in the 1950s, I guess, author of the classic Zen mind, beginner's mind, when Suzuki Roshi was talking about how we're all Buddhas and all that, somebody said, if we're all Buddhas, Master, why do we have to meditate? Why do we have to go on the Dharma path? Why do we have to take the Bodhisattva refuge and Bodhisattva vows and, and strive forward on the path? And the Master said, yes, we're all Buddhas, we're all perfect, but we could use a little tweaking.
tweaking. View, meditation, and tweaking. Action, conduct. Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste. Oh